Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. Why download the app? Because life is messy. We get stressed, anxious, have trouble sleeping, we work too hard, we deal with conflict, our hearts get broken, we worry about the state of the world, we meditate because we're human. Our app gives you hundreds of meditations from over 30 leading experts. It helps a lot. And if you haven't tried the app yet, you can now download it for free and explore a starter series with Elisha Goldstein plus a sample of some of our favorite guided meditations in the Discover collection. And if you've already got the app, check out our new unguided meditation timer where you can create your own meditations with or without our brand new pretty amazing music tracks. And don't forget the eight free meditations on Alexa. Just ask her to enable Meditation Studio. Today's guest is Diane Bondi. Diane is a celebrated yoga teacher, social justice advocate, leading voice of the Yoga for All movement, and a new teacher on our Meditation Studio app, where she's created meditations in the also brand new Eating Collection. Her philosophy as an extremely fit, plus-size woman is to inspire people around the world to accept their bodies regardless of size, shape, ethnicity, or level of ability. She shares her own personal journey with negative body image and an eating disorder, and then she shares the tools she now uses to feel more positive about her own body, just as it is. Diane discusses the myths around body image and the forces that tell us how we should look. She's passionate about the topic and shares many insights that she's gleaned along the way. Now, here's Diane. Diane, thank you so much for being on Untangled today. I'm so thrilled to have you with us. I'm, I'm excited to be invited. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we're going to talk today about body image and body positivity. And I want to understand a little bit about why our culture is so obsessed with body image and then how you came to be such an advocate for body positivity. For sure. I came to understand body image pretty early on in my childhood. I grew up in the 70s at the height of the fitness craze. And as far as I can remember, there wasn't a time that my mother wasn't trying to change her appearance or change who she was. My my mother was constantly on a diet and I was encouraged to be on a diet at a very young age. My parents both joined a fitness center. My dad took up running. So there was a lot of talk around fitness culture within my house. And I grew up as a plump, fat, whatever's the adjective you like to use to describe somebody in a larger body or an abundant body. I was always a bigger kid. And so I spent a lot of my childhood being teased around my weight. My parents were always very concerned about my weight. Like I said, I was on a diet from a very, very young age. And so I learned negative body image pretty early on. And it was really easily reinforced, not only by my parents, by by being teased at at school, by standing in line at the grocery store and seeing images of very thin people on the magazine. We had just come out of the history of like the Twiggy era, when there was a particular model who was very slender, who was, um, you know, set up as a standard of beauty for everyone, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your size. This was kind of the model that we were all aspiring to. And 
what ended up happening for me anyway is I internalized those messages of negative body image. And it wasn't until I had gone off to university and took like, I took like one women's studies course. I was a business major and we had like four electives and I decided to take a women's studies course and we just, we were given the book, The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf. And she talks about the historical reference as to when our society became involved with body image and and especially controlling women's body image. And it was right around the time when women were trying to achieve the vote, right around suffrage. And if we could keep women not focused on becoming powerful politically, but more focused on what they look like, we could disempower them and keep them distracted from standing into their power. And it was really interesting, probably a couple weeks ago, I shared it on my Instagram, but I saw a meme of a woman who was like her, the picture was like the 1950s and she's standing on a scale and it said, diet culture, keeping women disempowered since 1850. So it's really been a power or it's been a tool of oppression. If we can keep people externally focused, then we disempower them by not allowing them to know that the power of who they are resides in themselves, resides in their vulnerability, resides in connection. So if we can keep people focused on external things, then we can keep people disempowered. So body image is a tool of oppression. And you see negative body image most often in women, especially women of color. You also see it in marginalized communities. You also see it in non-white men. So you see this in the gay male population where there's a hyper focus on what you look like. And it's just essentially a tool to keep people from getting to know themselves. So if you think of it this way, if you're constantly concerned about what you look like, and you're, for example, for me, and I'm sitting in a classroom in university and I'm being taught, and I can't focus because I'm wondering who's looking at me. I'm comparing myself to the person next to me. Why is she thinner? I'm uncomfortable in my clothing because I think it doesn't fit and I don't think I look good. Then I can't concentrate on anything else that's going on. Not to mention that I'm probably on a diet, so I'm starving. So I can't be focused, I can't be effective, I can't be an activist, I can't be politically engaged because I'm so distracted, A, because I'm hungry, B, because I don't believe in myself, because I'm not a size double zero, and because I don't have a thigh gap, or because I don't look a certain way, I somehow don't feel powerful in these settings, and I can't stand up or step into my power. And so if you look at it in those perspectives, it's a tool to keep people disempowered. Mm -hmm. What was your trigger? One trigger was the beauty myth, the book that you read while you were in college. But then what was your journey to this point where you can say, you know, I love my body no matter what size, I can be healthy. It's more about feeling good about who I am as a human being. Well, I had a couple of aha moments. Uh, the first aha moment was I had been battling pretty seriously with an eating disorder in my 30s. I mean, I've been battling with an eating disorder, if I look at my life honestly, for from the time I was probably about 12. My mother put me on a diet at eight, and that just... Ugh led me down a rabbit hole because I don't know if people know this, not 
all diets end in an eating disorder, but every single eating disorder begins with a diet. So that that kind of set me up for failure there. It wasn't until I was trying to get pregnant in my early 30s and I just, I couldn't. I spent a year that my doctor pulled me aside and said, okay, you have this really low body fat and your body can only do one or two things. It can keep your body fat really low because you're over-exercising and you're not eating enough. So your body's just trying to stay alive here. So it can't sustain another life when it's just trying to keep you alive. So this is what the doctor had said to me. So maybe dial back on the exercise, take in more calories, and reduce some of the stress in your life before we start looking at infertility treatments. So I had to take a big step back and take a good, hard, long look at myself. And it was there where I kind of circled back to my yoga practice, which I had set aside for running and, and boot camp and these other really intense forms of exercise wrapped around body image for me. And so a tool for me to kind of get back to myself was to come back to my mat and get back to my spiritual practice that said to me, wait a minute, you're perfect as you are. Let's take a minute. Let's breathe together. Let's just relax for a second. So I came back to my yoga practice. So I've been practicing yoga pretty much on and off for a good 44 years. And it was back in my 30s where I came back to my practice. And so I stopped working out so intently. And I gained, I think, 15 pounds. And then I got pregnant. Boom, just like that. Yeah. And so it made me realize that I was like hurting myself. And then the shift happened for me personally is that I'm now sustaining another life besides my own. So I didn't want to do anything harmful to my body that would in turn harm my child. So I didn't want my child to be born. And then I thought to myself, I didn't eat properly. I overexercised. Now he's malnourished or whatever it was. I wanted to give my baby every opportunity to be healthy. So I had to start treating my body better. And I also started to look at my body as a miracle because before I was struggling to get pregnant for over a year and I gained 15 pounds and I was pregnant in five minutes. And it made me realize that there was a huge correlation between how I treated and fed my body and then how my body responded. And there had been this huge disconnect through diet and fitness culture for like 20 years between me and my body. And it wasn't until I came to a spiritual practice that I saw the connection between me and my body. I was asking my body to do something miraculous and it was able to do it when I was paying attention and being to it. So that shifted my perspective on my body. The minute I stopped focusing on what my body looked like, and if I fueled it properly, and if I was kind to it, what it could do, it changed everything. So a big part of my peace with my body came from my yoga practice telling me it's okay to be exactly as you are, that you are not trying to uh, achieve a particular physical aesthetic, that you want to feel good. And when you feel good about yourself, you're more likely to take care of yourself. And the, a, a big message that has stuck with me throughout this is you can't heal a body you hate right? You can't heal a body you hate. So I had to turn and look at my body for all the miraculous things it does. And I still live in awe of it. We want to beat up our body. We want to degradate our body because it doesn't look like this arbitrary standard of fitness and health that God knows where came from. Like somebody decided this was the model of what we all should look like, regardless of your height, your size, your genetics, your ethnicity, that this is the model we're searching for that 99% of us cannot achieve. And I was just listening to a commentator talk about 
the Victoria's Secrets model. There's a very specific aesthetic for that type of that type of show. And if you look at those women, they're all 5'10". They all have a 24 inch waist. They represent like 1% of the population, yet they're the standard of beauty that 99% of the population is ex expected to live up to. And that's the same for men. There's this hairless, shredded, muscle-bound image. Every time we stand in the grocery store and we look at men's fitness, there's this unrealistic ask of men to look a certain way. And these are just aesthetics that people have generated. A lot of the time they have been photoshopped. So it's an unrealistic way to, to, to ask people to be and ask people to look. And that just pulls away from their own joy and it pulls away from their power. So for me, it took the miracle of having a baby and then just realizing in general, whether I really feel like you have a baby or not, in general, that just how miraculous your body is, it still shows up for me the best way it knows how. So it's not to blame for any shortcomings. It's so interesting that you talk about the media assault on all of us that don't fit those standards of perfection. And a lot of what I think we want to teach our children and, and learn ourselves is this concept of self-love. Because mm -hmm. you're talking about body love and we should appreciate and love our body for the miracles that it presents to us every single day of our lives. But it's bigger than just our body, right? It's we take care of ourselves, every part of ourselves and think more holistically rather than just about these external forces. Absolutely. When we focus too much on the external, we don't truly get to know ourselves. We don't, I, we don't ever step in fully to our power. We don't, we don't know how to interact with other people. It is so much bigger than what you look like. And we need to pull ourselves away from that, ex, that constant focus on the external and draw inward and look, look at what's going on internally. So what are some of the tools that you use to help women really sort of love their bodies and love themselves? So one of the tools that I like to introduce to the people that I work with around cultivating a, a self-acceptance or self-love is to participate in self-care. And I think self-care is really important. A lot of times we hear self-care or we consider self-care as like we go and get a massage or you go get a manicure or I hear people kind of refer to it as that. But it goes much bigger than that. Anything where you can pause and take a few minutes and reconnect with your breath or your spirit is self-care. So self-care could be going for a walk or self-care could be taking a nap if taking a nap in the middle of the day is available to you. Or self-care can also be just pulling off of social media or unplugging from some of those more toxic messages. And that's the first thing I say to people on the path to learning to love and accept themselves. First, we have to participate in self-care. And when we do that, I think we feel more powerful. We can de-stress a little bit better. My self-care practices are I practice yoga every single day. And when I say I practice yoga, it's not necessarily asana, like the physical postures. I, uh, I participate in meditation. I participate in mindfulness. I try to get a walk in every single day. And I also try to connect with people who, who feed me or I can learn from. So that's part of uh, my self-care. I try to weed out the people who I find drain my energy or maybe I stay off of social media because there's a lot of stuff going in the world that can often make us feel helpless when we see what's going on in the yeah. world. So we pull, I pull back from some of those things that 
zap my energy and pull my strength. And I participate in self-care. And again, self-care can just be standing in your garden and looking at a flower or taking a deep breath in on a cold day outside and just feeling your lungs work for you in a way that feels good. It could be anything at all. So really disengaging from this idea that self-care has to be a 10-day retreat somewhere, or it has to be something where you have to be out of pocket, right? Self-care can happen for free anywhere, anytime. In the beginning of our conversation, before we started recording, you were telling me how busy you've been, and especially for the last two days, plus you haven't felt well. Are you walking the talk? I have. I've gone gone on a walk every day. People have said to me, I thought you were sick. I'm like, yeah, but fresh air and being out in nature, there is proof that the world vibrates at a certain frequency. And when we go out and and commune with nature, go for a walk, even though where I am, everything is frozen. um, I do even, (laughs) I'm from Canada here and we're just like, it's just a big chunk of ice where I am now. I I still go for a walk by the water and that's a connection to that vibration of the world that instantly makes me feel better. Yeah. Busy as I am, I can buy five minutes to disengage. And you know, I'm a big fan of the meditation studio app and I have that on my iPod and I can pick three minutes to sit and breathe or five minutes or 20 minutes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I love hearing that. (laughs) That's easy, right? That's right. That's, that's, right. That's a teeny tiny investment and a huge payback on that investment. So yes, I, I know people like to say, and I had this conversation with at soccer, not only am I super busy, but my kids play competitive sports. So if there's anybody out there with a child in competitive sports, you know just how busy that is. <laughs> and I have two in competitive sports. And I was sitting next to a mom who was like, you know, I work at five, I get home at seven, and my, I have three boys, and they're all in different things, and I don't have time for self-care, and I don't have time for self-care. And I'm thinking to myself, you do, but it's not important enough for you to make time. I'm not asking you to set aside two hours to go for a walk. I'm asking you to set aside three to five minutes to re-engage with yourself if you are that busy. Yeah. Because those three to five minutes will increase your productivity, will remove some of your anxiety, will give you a clearer perspective on the world, and will just give your body a little bit of a break from the constant go, 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 go. Yeah. So, for me, I get to bed early. If stuff doesn't get done. It doesn't get done. It just has to get done another day. And it's what's amazing to me is it always gets done. Right. <laughs> it just so true. Honestly gets done. So I stop being like, oh my gosh, I can't, oh, I have all this. It just, it gets done. I don't understand how it happens, but it happens. So I have faith in the universe that stuff will just get done but I have to take care of myself first. You can't really navigate your life successfully if you don't pause and take a few minutes to recharge your batteries. So true. Yes, so true. So you said that you, you, from the time you were eight, you defined yourself as having an eating disorder. And of course, like we all know so many women who have eating disorders or eating challenges. What's your relationship with food now? How do you eat? Like I'm trying to understand that intersection between feeling really good about yourself and your body and also being healthy? You know what? My relationship with food has really changed. So for me, I had to go into treatment for my eating disorders. They were very serious. I was hospitalized. I almost died. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty intense for a while there in my teens. I would say from 14 till about 20, I was really battling for my life. So what has happened for me is I've let go of this idea of good foods and bad foods. I don't think you are morally superior or a better person because you eat kale. 
and you somehow <laughs> <laughs> shortcomings are left in a person because you start the bag of Doritos. I go, if you need to eat those Doritos, eat them and enjoy every minute of them. If you love kale, go ahead and really enjoy your kale. I now need to see what are some of the foods I'm eating that are making me not feel so good. I decided just really recently to head off to a natural path and get an allergy test and see what foods were actually bothering me. And here's the kicker. So a lot of foods that I thought were super healthy foods or I've been told were super healthy foods, I was allergic to. Oh, wow. So here I am making smoothies and I'm dumping algae in them and I'm putting flaxseed in them and I'm really excited about this only to find out I have a food sensitivity to do, to do those two things, which are often touted as healthy foods, right? Interesting, yeah. I had come back from my, I had blood work, and when I came back from my blood work, there were 40 things on my test that I was allergic to, and I was just like, uh. So I had to go into a place about healing my gut. So now I start thinking about foods in terms of how I feel when I eat them. So I don't necessarily eliminate any food, but if I eat something and I end up not feeling so good, I'm like, okay, I need to cut back on that. And I just overall want to feel good. So sometimes it feels good to me to eat a whole pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And sometimes it feels good to me to eat a whole bowl of kale. And I can't say that happens very often on <laughs> either sides of the spectrum. But I do just take food in as a source of energy, as a source of pleasure, as a source of comfort. All those things are okay for me now. And that has helped me just make peace with food, that food isn't the enemy, that there are no bad foods and there are no good foods. You need to eat to, to, for a place where you feel good, where you have energy. And if you're finally getting to a place where you are accepting yourself and you're healing yourself, and I've said this before, you can't heal a body that you hate. So if you're in a place to like really pay attention to your body, you'll start noticing, okay, when I eat this, uh, for a couple of days, I'm really mucousy and I don't really feel that great. So maybe I'm not going to have this every day. Maybe I'm just going to have this as a treat once in a while. Or then maybe like today, I had Vietnamese food and I have a sensitivity to wheat. My God, those spring rolls, like <laughs> Seriously. And I'm like, that's okay. I have a sensitivity to wheat, but I'm going to have those spring rolls and I'm just going to live with the consequences. Of <laughs> but when I'm eating them, I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. And that's what I did. Food is the source. It can be sensual. It can be nourishing. It can be comforting. It can be all these things. And I just learned to enjoy all those things. Yeah. And, I've, and I've just learned to notice and respond to my body when I enjoy those things. Well, and it sounds like you have such a great awareness about it, which is really important. I mean, you're, some of the meditations that you've got on Meditation Studio now in the eating collection are about body gratitude. You talked yeah. a little bit about that, being grateful for the miracle of your body. Mm -hmm. And then you also do a meditation which has to do with like slowing down while eating. And I like what you're saying about food can be pleasurable, it can be yeah. sensual, it can be nourishing. Mm -hmm. And to really be thinking about these, all of these things that, that food can do to help our bodies. So do you think that women can really get to this place where we <laughs> stop worrying about our bodies being so perfect? And of course, like I'm in my yoga class and I look at all of the bodies and every single body is different. Yep. Every single body is different. Yep. And 
I do believe we can get there. I don't think it's going to happen overnight because we have been taught these messages of oppression through diet and fitness culture for hundreds of years. So it's not going to happen overnight. And really, the body positive movement has only really gotten traction, I want to say, since 2014, 2015. We've only just start seeing the pushback against fitness culture. And the interesting result of this is for the first time in a very long time, the number one New Year's resolution in 2018 was not to lose weight. The number one resolution was to be a better person. The second resolution was to eat better. So there was no connotation of body image or weight, but to overall be a better person. So I think we're stepping into a more spiritual side and a more aware side. I mean, there's always going to be people who are going to be caught up in diet fitness culture because I think the pull is so strong and we've been brainwashed for so long. If we could stop being distracted by what we look like, what kind of powerful things could we do that could shift the scope of the world to a place yeah. of equity and justice and love and you know what I mean and connection for everybody what if that were to happen but I think people are waking up to that I see less and less people concerned about a certain aesthetic and more people concerned about living their best life and feeling and I mean just that whole idea that a resolution now is to be a better person yeah I mean, that is so much more endearing and so much more powerful and so much more helpful to humanity than being a size zero or two or having a thigh gap or whatever yeah. it is that we've been brainwashed to believe is going to make us a better person. I wanted to ask you another question because you seem to pair up the diet and the fitness culture. And I think of the diet culture as separate from the fitness culture because I think of fitness as being just a really good thing for you and diet maybe not so much. But how do you link them together? Is it the body image issue? It's the body image piece. And I find often when you, like, for example, if you go to the gym today, they are not going to be mostly focused with, do you want to improve your cardiovascular health? Are you trying to reduce your blood pressure? They want to know right off the bat, how much weight do you want to lose? And they want to measure your body fat. So usually when you step into a fitness uh, goal or a fitness perspective, the first thing they're trying to do is change your body. They're trying to get you to lose weight. I have yet to go into a fitness genre and not have weight loss be the number one focus. And we know that weight loss is often linked to body image. Right. If you can go somewhere and say, yeah, I just would like to be stronger. So as often fitness culture is directly linked to changing your body, to having washed abs, to having a thigh gap. So it's yeah. linked to that. And that, and they want to put you on restrictive diets and they want to do all this stuff and they want to connect it to fitness. So that's why I linked yeah. up. And you also talk about the fact that you are really committed to helping your students find mm -hmm. freedom, self-expression, and radical self-love through their yoga practice. Yes. And I, I mean, I see this is so different from fitness culture, right? Like, the, <laughs> you know, here we are, like, it's just love who you are and yeah. feel good about your body and get in touch with your yourself. And so tell me a little bit more about how you work with your students to, to get to this place. So every now and again, I'll teach a class at the high school and they always ask me to come because I always start a yoga class with a Dharma talk. And I talk to them as young women, so it's the ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade girls gym class that I go. And they particularly like me to come because I'm rocking an abundant large body and I'm fit. And this is something you don't see 
you know, celebrated. You just assume if somebody's fat, they can't be fit or they can't be flexible or they can't do yoga. And so I show up and I can do hands. I can do everything. I can do hands. I can do splits. I can do all of that stuff. And I'm almost 50. So I think that's pretty impressive. And so I go and I talk to these young women about making peace with their bodies and talk to them about what we're seeing, about being conscious of the images that media, our friends and our parents are constantly feeding us and looking for ways to offset those messages, looking for body positive communities for them to join and looking for ways that they can lift each other up as opposed to tearing each other down. Because that's something cultural as well that we've been taught as people and as women in particular, that tearing somebody else down is the way that we build up our own self-confidence. And if we can just change the narrative and the way that we talk to ourselves, we can begin to like ourselves. And I'm not asking, you know, self-love is a huge and tall order. And it's not just as easy as saying, oh, just love yourself or radical self-love is easy. It's not. It's going to be a lifelong practice that happens moment to moment, baby steps. And if the first thing that you can stop talking negatively about your body, notice how your body feels when you're not always criticizing it or criticizing other people's bodies. So it comes back to being conscious of your language and conscious of your interactions with other people. It's so true that if you can just first notice that you even have these negative feelings, like when you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, "Ugh, I look this or I look that, just stop that and just notice what's positive. And I think just shifting that thinking can have an enormous impact. I I completely agree with you. What's next for you? You're going to continue with this yoga for all movement. So tell us a little bit about the yoga for all movement. So for me, the very first time I stepped into a public yoga class, I had already been practicing for like 30 years. And so I decided I wanted to see what it was like to practice in a public like yoga studio. So I went in with all my experience of practicing in my large body and was met with this resistance and was met with this judgment by the teachers and even to this day if I go to a yoga studio in another city where people maybe not don't know that I practice yoga or don't know that I'm part of this yoga for all movement and they'll say to me well we can't slow down the class for you so just do what you can do and I'll be like you know what that's fine I'll just do what I can do and that's usually what I say or I'm terrible I might play a game I'm never given the benefit of the doubt that I may have practiced before people just look at me and assume I've never practiced before and I say you know I'll set up in the corner and don't worry about me this is a game I play and then I go to yoga class and then I do my practice and the shock that registers on the (laughs) is always laughable because sometimes I'll just go and start warming up and this is when my ego gets away from me I'm just gonna be honest about that I'll keep it 100 my ego gets away from me and I start you know practicing handstands or forearm stands and then and then the teacher's on to me right at this point right but I just butted up against a lot of negativity and then when I called it out publicly I wrote a blog for elephant journal in 2011 where I wrote a blog that said yoga just isn't for skinny white girls. And that, <laughs> was, that was clickbait. Okay. So I didn't have to talk about skinny white girls. I talked about everybody else that's not represented in yoga culture, but we get this standardized image of what a yoga person looks like. They're young, they're fair skinned, they're flexible. They're usually a very small bodied person. So I just was like, I'm kind of tired of people looking at me and going, 
you do yoga? Really? So then I decided that I would start speaking up and pushing back against that narrative and just helping other people who looked like me or who were had non-conforming yoga bodies also be seen like at, on the yoga mat. So we needed to create more forward-facing images in yoga media that represented all the other people who were also invited on this mat. Because if you're a person that looks like me, and you look at yoga media culture and you don't see a person that looks like you, you assume this is not for you, even though it is for you. And so I worked with my friend Melanie Klein and we created, along with a, a lot of other people, the Yoga and Body Image Coalition. And we were dedicated to shifting and changing the narrative and constantly disrupting this conversation that everybody was having that this is what yoga looks like. And initially, we had a ton of pushback from people who were like, I heard a lot of racist stuff. I heard a lot of sexist stuff. People were really angry wow. that we were breaking their bubble around what yoga looks like. And even now and again, I'm on a lot of online platforms and sometimes I'll go through the comments and people will comment on my body size, say that I'm representing an unhealthy idea because I'm in a larger body. So if I force myself to be in a smaller body, then I have to be unhealthy. I have to have an eating disorder. I have to work out a ton. Like my body is just not designed to be very small. It doesn't matter what diet I'm on or how much weight loss I do or what I eat, my body will settle out in a larger space. And when I look at my genetics and I look at my family, it's the same. We have a specific body type that I cannot continue to fight, right? right. I can just look at my family and go, I will never have a thigh gap. I will always have a big butt. Like, do you know what I mean? It's just <laughs> genetics. Yeah. And no matter how I fight it, it's not going to change. I have to make peace with my body where it's at and I have to feed it and nourish it so I feel good. So yeah. when I feel good, I go out in the world and I do good things. I mean, I think that's the perfect way to put it. I mean, we all have to make peace with our bodies. We have to be yeah. as healthy as we can and we have to accept our bodies and be grateful for the miracles of our bodies. Totally. It's the only vehicle we have in which to experience this miracle we call life. And I think it's worthy of our acceptance and it's worthy of our gratitude more so than it's worthy of our criticisms. I hope that people can really benefit from hearing this and all of your great wisdom about shifting the way that we think about our bodies because it's so important and yoga really should be for everyone and meditation certainly should be for everyone. Diane, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. And I just, I hope we'll have you back on the show to, to tell us more about your adventures in the future. Thank you so much, Patricia. I appreciate being included. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm really happy to be a part of the Meditation Studio app. I just think it's a great tool for all of us to have. Thanks so much to Diane for being with us today. For more information on her work, check out dianebondyyoga.com. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to download Meditation Studio in the App Store. We'll see you next time.